Welcome to Insight, the insurance news podcast hosted by me, Andrew Sawfox. In this week's edition of Insight, once there was a wicked witch in the lovely land of Oz, but ding dong, the witch is dead. La Nina leaves us, but threatens a reunion. Things have been shaking up after a spate of complaints from claims associated with last year's Victorian earthquake. And we get all Breaking Bad New Zealand style with warnings about myth and vitamin cover, cuzzy bro. Hello, everyone. I'll start with the apology for the accent. And this week, I'm joined by Chairman Terry McMullen, Editor John Deeks, and Deputy Editor Wendy Pugh. Welcome back, Wendy. Good morning, Andrew. What did we miss? What did I miss, really? <laughs> Sounds like your holiday was good. Good morning, Terry. Good morning. It's a Tasman-flavoured episode this week. Is that your doing? Uh, no, it, it's not. But I, yes, I, I should have actually said good, good morning, Andrew. But... <laughs> um, <laughs> it is rather kiwi flavored this week. And, you know, talking of accents, the king of accents is insurance news. Hello, John. Hello. Listeners still seem to think that you've got an English accent and you're not actually uh, a broad Aussie. Yeah, I'm clinging on to it. I think I do sound a bit Australian sometimes. <laughs> we respectfully disagree with that opinion. So let's run over the big news. Wendy, La Nina is gone. The Bureau of Meteorology says uh, the La Nina, which has brought so much wet weather this year, has reached an end. But at the same time, it says that some of the climate models that it monitors are suggesting La Nina may return later this year. So it's actually now issued a La Nina watch, which means there's a 50% chance of it forming again this year, which is about uh, double the, the normal likelihood. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's gone, but, it, but another one might reemerge. Gone but not forgotten. How does this recent event rate compared to other La Ninas, John? They do analyse the strength of the weather pattern, and I'm not aware that this one was particularly strong. The strongest on record was the 2010-11 La Nina, which, of course, along with Cyclone Yazi, contributed to those terrible floods in, in Brisbane at that time. There were other very strong events in 1975, 76, 1955 and 56, and 1917 and 18. Of course, it's not all about the strength of the event. Sometimes you get severe flooding even when the event isn't, isn't a record breaker. And I think this La Nina takes the accolade for the most damage, doesn't it? Because obviously, as we've said several times, the flood events that we had earlier this year is, is the most damaging on, on record. Now, as Wendy says, La Nina could, could be back and that would make it three years in a row. Uh, a triple dip La Nina, which apparently has happened only twice since 1950. Well, the analysis section this week looks into how we rebuild after those East Coast floods. John, tell us what communities are saying on the like for like issue. Yeah, so this is an interesting one because obviously insurers and governments have been pushing the idea that we should build back better after these floods. And sometimes that means relocating communities or putting in mitigation measures on a community level. But some people want to stay put and they want to rebuild where they are. And what the Insurance Council is finding is that at the community forums they're holding up in the flood affected areas, people are standing up and saying, well, I want to rebuild, but I want to rebuild in a more resilient way. Now, there's only one problem with this, and that's that insurance contracts are designed to rebuild like for like. The whole idea is that the insurance puts you back into a position 
that you were in before the event took place and you end up with an equivalent property to what you had before. It becomes a bit tricky when people are saying, oh, I need to rebuild and and can you please pay for my house to be rebuilt two metres higher, for example, because that's a very expensive process and the insurers, there's no reason why they should be on the hook for that because premiums have been charged for a like-for-like replacement. So there's a lot of debate about this at the moment. Insurers are starting to look at policy wordings and, and whether there might be a better way to arrange it. There is some flexibility too. Insurers don't just say, tough luck, you're getting what you got before exactly uh, to the letter. They will try to incorporate resilience measures where they can and where it's not too expensive. Well, damning proof that I actually read the things that you guys write. I seem to recall that this was something that came up with bushfires and then making, you know, in those fire-related areas, more fire-resistant dwellings. Um, Is this just how insurance has to work or could there be a way to change things for the better, Terry? Well, it could be, but but right now it it is a, that's a, a really tough question. As John said, like for like gives you a repaired or rebuilt home back to the, the standard you had, but the insurer is contractually bound to ju- do just that and no more. If you want to tinker with the design to make your home more resilient or even just more comfortable, then in most circumstances, that extra cost is going to have to come out of the claimant's pocket. There are allowances like uh, Suncorp's 10 grand one, I think, for, is that just for cyclones, John? Cyclone homes or is that for floods as well? I think it can be for for any disaster, but yeah, they, they have a build it back better scheme that allows an extra 10 grand for resilience measures under certain circumstances. Yeah, and there are allowances also available from the Queensland government, uh, but those are very localised, obviously. Look, this is a particularly a problem after after floods because the house is usually still standing, so it would be nice to build a, a new, more resilient house, but in, but in fact, it's still standing, so just very waterlogged. So th- there's a limit to what the insurer can do. In the case of a cyclone or bushfire, you'll often find homes have to also be repaired or even rebuilt to a new, stronger and more resilient standard. All this came to a head after the the 2009 Victorian bushfires when the, the state government introduced regulations for new buildings that made them more bushfire resilient, but also a lot more expensive to build. And that meant people who'd lost their homes were underinsured, And as a result, they had to dig deep into their own reserves to cover the shortfall, except that they couldn't afford to rebuild it all or rebuild with a much smaller house. So building back better comes up against like for like. And in most cases, like for like is is going to win because that's what the insurer is obligated to do, put it back the way it was. The way the policies are are written at present, certainly, that's the situation. I imagine that uh, the build it better would potentially have challenges of people making claims to actually improve their their dwellings or their builds themselves. Yeah, it it all comes down to the money. And when you look at the the amount of uh, work that insurers have to do, uh, obviously that gets 
pretty complicated. Well, from floods to earthquakes, Wendy, apparently there's been a lot of complaints about how insurers are handling claims from last year's Victorian earthquake. Aphkisis, the earthquake, has generated the third highest number of um, complaints in the past 12 months, um, which is uh, pretty amazing for that event, given you know all the large-scale catastrophes we've had over that period. So Africa says it's received um, 373 complaints for the quake, just over 400 from um, the floods and um, more than 3,700 COVID-related complaints. But so far for the uh, earthquake, at, at this stage, 150 complaints have been concluded and there's been 297,000 in payments made to policyholders um, who have been successful. We've featured a few AFCA rulings, haven't we, John? Yes, we have. We've seen um, about four or five determinations published already and they're all relatively similar to be honest it's usually a homeowner saying the earthquake caused cracking in my ceiling or or walls and the insurer comes back with well we don't believe that the earthquake caused these cracks they were either pre-existing or they were caused by something else such as unrelated earth movement or similar most of the rulings have gone the way of the insurers so far but there have been one or two where complainants have gotten a payout i think what it seems to come down to is expert evidence so if you were going to put a claim in for this event you'd want to make sure that you had an expert report that pointed to some evidence to prove that the earthquake actually caused the damage. seems like insurers are taking a view that the epicentre of the quake was a long way from Melbourne. Most of these claims relate to Melbourne properties, and they just don't believe that it had the necessary power to cause damage to Melbourne properties. So, yeah, if you want to get your claim paid, you're going to have to have an expert who, who says this damage wasn't here before the earthquake and the earthquake caused it. Well, the Kiwis must be across these issues, Terry. Is there anything we can learn from our friends across the Tasman? Well, Andrew, uh, probably not. The, the, the Christchurch earthquakes really revealed the complexity of the relationship there between the insurers and the government's earthquake commission, which pays for repairs or rebuilds above a certain limit. It rapidly got really bureaucratic and messy, especially where homes were damaged rather than destroyed. There were so many appeals and re-examinations, it was all a bit crazy. They've learned from their their experience and they've cleaned it up quite a lot, certainly after the Kaikoura earthquake went a, a hell of a lot better. But I really don't think Australian insurers, who own most of the market over there anyway, would want to try it here. Well, talking of New Zealand, A question I never thought I'd uh, be talking about. It appears that methamphetamine contamination is still a big issue there, John. Yes, it is. This has has become a problem over over recent years, usually for landlords where a a tenant either uses or in some extreme circumstances manufactures methamphetamine in the property. And what that can lead to is chemical contamination. It sort of seeps into the walls and uh, it's a hugely expensive job to get that property back into a a state where it can be rented out again. When these claims started to flow in, insurers tightened up. And now we have a situation in New Zealand where there, there are quite a few complaints about insurance coverage on the on, on the issue. So insurers do cover it, but there's not really consistency in the way that they cover it. They sometimes will only pay if the contamination level is over a certain threshold, but not all insurers work to the same threshold. 
So we report in, in, in the newsletter this week about a case where a man thought he was covered for methamphetamine contamination, but when the claim went in, the insurer said, no, it doesn't reach the threshold. So he was left without cover. Yeah, I think the point is that brokers and insureds need to be across this issue and make sure they have the cover in place that they need. Terry, this is above my pay grade. It's all about clarity of the coverage at the end, isn't it? The insurance is available. It's messy, obviously. There's no there's no standards or anything that we can follow. But look, the insurers will at least decontaminate a rental property. But as John says, exactly what a contaminated property is, is is open to speculation. But it's really important because under New Zealand law, a tenant can arrange a so-called meth test of a rental property without the landlord's knowledge. And if it's above a, a minimum level for safe occupation, landlords can also find themselves liable for the costs of not only the tenant's relocation, but also the value of the tenant's contaminated belongings. Everything must be very absorbent over there. Whatever it is, I really think it, it's probably messy, but it could quite easily be cleaned up with a, with a bit of talking between the insurers. Well, this is quite frankly the most contemporary topic that we've ever think we've ever covered here in, a, in Insight Podcast. So finally, John, there's a change at the top at RACQ Insurance. Yes, there is. So Tracy Green who was the group executive insurance at RACQ, is leaving the company. GM claims Trent Sayers is taking on that top role in an acting capacity until a replacement is found. So we got a statement from RACQ. They said that uh, Ms Green was taking a well-earned break after a really challenging year for the industry. Obviously, there's been all these catastrophes and an awful lot of debate about things like the cyclone reinsurance pool and so on. But they say that uh, Tracy Green has left RACQ insurance in a very strong position with a clear strategy and they're able to meet the future head on. Wendy, how important is RACQ when it comes to tackling the insurance challenges in uh, Queensland? It's certainly a very uh, high profile organisation in Queensland through its motoring and insurance uh, businesses. So it's well placed to be influential and it's got somewhere near uh, 1.8 million members. Um, when, when we spoke to Tracy for the magazine a while back, she certainly highlighted the importance of that mitigation message. And we reported a few weeks ago that RACQ had formed a new advocacy department as it seeks to really have a, a stronger voice on issues such as uh, resilience and sustainability. And, you know, that's so important for the, both the policyholders and, and the future of, of the organisation. Consider me educated. Thank you, Wendy. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's Insight Podcast by Insurance News. Thank you once again to our panel, John Deeks, Wendy Pugh and Terry McMullen. Enjoy your week and thank you all for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at editor at insurancenews.com.au. We value your input. You can read all these stories and many others at your leisure at insurancenews.com.au. You can subscribe to the Insight Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, and all your favorite podcast platforms now. We look forward to catching up again next week. Listener.